You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, y'all. Before we get to the action at the Peach Orchard, we wanted to take a couple of minutes here at the beginning of the show to do a bit of self-promotion. Right. Well, first off, we want to let you know that as of two days ago, the podcast has an Instagram account joining the show's Twitter feed and Facebook page as ways that you can follow us on social media. So now, if you go to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org, on the sidebar menu to the right on the main page, you'll find links to Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can just go straight to Instagram and pull us up as at CW Podcast 1861. This past year or so, we purposefully restricted the time we spent on social media for a variety of reasons, and so we limited ourselves, for the most part, to simply posting updates whenever new episodes came out or weren't coming out. But now we think we're ready to be more active again on social media, and as part of that, we decided to hop on to Instagram. We also wanted to remind you that there are several ways you can help support the podcast, either through the purchase of t-shirts and whatnot on our Tee Public storefront, or financially through a one-time donation, or on a monthly basis over at Patreon by signing up for the Strawfoot Brigade. There's a link on the podcast website to our Tee Public storefront, and hey, With it being summertime and with people being out and about again, what better way to show you're a fan of the show than with an official podcast listener t-shirt? There's even a couple of Gettysburg-specific themed designs that look great on a t-shirt, so be sure to check those out if you're enjoying this Battle of Gettysburg story arc. Then, those one-time donations are always appreciated, and you can make a secure donation by going to the podcast website and following the prompts to do that through PayPal. And no, you don't actually need to have a PayPal account to make a donation, since we've had some of you ask us about that. And that brings us to the Strawfoot Brigade. And that's just the fun name we came up with for the folks who support the podcast on a monthly basis over on Patreon. Your financial support helps us out, and you get access to tons of members' episodes. In fact, just yesterday, we released members' episode number 118, which is the first show in a two-parter about Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and his rise to fame. Anyway, you can find information about joining the Strawfoot Brigade if, yes, you guessed it, if you go to the podcast website and click at the top of the main page where it says Patreon slash Strawfoot Brigade. 
And by the by, but also at the website, you can find information about us and photos of us if you're curious what we look like, and an email address if you'd like to contact us that way. And last but not least, you can help us out by word of mouth. Very simply, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell others about it. But if you don't like it, uh, just keep that to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Rich. (laughs) The order was given to strip for the fight. The men carried their scanty change of clothing wrapped in their blankets and thrown over their shoulders. Each regiment piled these in a heap and each left a man with the baggage. The field officers dismounted from their horses, the reason for this being that an order had been issued some time before that no officer below the rank of brigadier general should ride into battle because of the fact that the government had a great deal of difficulty in replacing the horses killed. I gave my horse and watch, as well as some other belongings, to my servant. After these orders had been complied with, the order was given, Dress to the colors and forward to the foe. After moving through the woods a short distance, we came to a fence around a field of grain. The battle was progressing. Before us lay open fields dotted with houses, and right in our front were some farmhouses with a grove of trees to the left and the enemy drawn up in a double line of battle some five to six hundred yards distance and supported by artillery. We steadily advanced, driving the enemy before us until we reached the houses with the trees on the left. The trees proved to be a peach orchard. On the end of the orchard was a barn in which a part of the enemy had taken refuge. I, with most of the regiment, was directly in front of the barn. I called to the men that the barn must be captured and to follow me, and I would open the door. They followed me with a rush, and I forced the door open, and within less than two minutes we had killed, wounded, or captured every man in the barn. The barn was filled with smoke so dense that it was very nearly impossible to distinguish a man's body in it. Such a continuous fire had the enemy within kept up. We left the barn, and the brigade moved through the orchard towards the heights, still driving the enemy before them. General Barksdale encouraged the men by shouting, Forward, men, forward, which is the only command that I ever heard him give after a battle commenced. Major George B. Gerald, 18th Mississippi Infantry, Barksdale's Brigade, Longstreet's Corps, Army of Northern Virginia. Then came the rebel cheer, sounding like a continuous yelp. Nearer and nearer it came. Our batteries kept up a rapid fire. The breeze blowing from the southward carried the heavy sulfurous smoke in clouds along the ground, at times concealing everything from my view. Our skirmishers now began a lively popping, the first drops of the thunder shower that was to break upon us. An aide rode up to General Humphreys with the report that heavy masses of the enemy were gathering in our front and to prepare for an attack. A copious shower of shell and canister from the enemy was followed by a diabolical cheer and yell, and the warning, Here they come, rang along our lines. 
Our batteries opened. Our troops rose to their feet. The crash of artillery and the tearing rattle of musketry was staggering, adding to the advancing roar and cheer of the enemy's masses, coming on like devils incarnate. Lieutenant Odolfo Cavada, Staff, Brigadier General Andrew Humphreys, 3rd Corps, Army of the Potomac. Hey everyone, welcome to the 355th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, we used the last show to set the stage for the Confederate attack on the Federal's Peach Orchard Salient on July 2nd, 1863. At the very end of the last show, it was just before 6 p.m., and Brigadier General William Barksdale and his four Mississippi regiments had finally received the order to advance. At one point, Barksdale had begged Longstreet to let him advance, saying that he'd smashed the Yankees in front of him in five minutes. His men had been suffering for far too long from the shot and shell fired by the Union guns just across the way. But now, unleashed at last... Barksdale and his 1,600 men emerged from the trees along Seminary Ridge, piercing the air with a rebel yell, and rushed straight ahead toward the Peach Orchard, embarking on what would turn out to be one of the most epic brigade charges of the Civil War. To their front, the Pennsylvanians of Charles Graham's brigade, backed up by a few regiments from Burling's brigade, braced for the Confederate assault. Like Barksdale's rebels, these Federals, too, had suffered from the lengthy artillery exchange and had grown weary of the enemy cannon fire, with their nerves fraying a bit while awaiting the Confederate attack. Now, though, they rose to their feet, drew back the hammers on their muskets, and waited for the Mississippians to come within range. The gunners serving the six Napoleons of Lieutenant John Buckland's Battery E, First Rhode Island Light Artillery, quote-unquote, fairly peppered the onrushing gray and butternut tide with blasts of canister, but there seemed to be no slowing the Mississippians, who charged forward, as Lieutenant Cavada said, yelling, quote, like devils incarnate. The rebels soon slammed head-on with the federal troops manning Sickles salient in the peach orchard, And just as Barksdale had predicted, it only took a matter of minutes for his Mississippians to smash through the Union line. The 68th Pennsylvania, positioned on the left of Graham's line, lost nearly half its strength, giving way under the weight of the 21st Mississippi, which was advancing on Barksdale's far right. Other federal regiments followed the 68th toward the rear, and the Union line quickly became unhinged. The Federal artillery batteries supporting Graham's infantry in the Peach Orchard and along the Emmitsburg Road began limbering up and galloping away 
including Buckland's Rhode Islanders, but not before that battery lost 29 men and 40 horses. The 21st Mississippi swept through the shattered peach trees, while to its left, the men of Barksdale's other three regiments crashed into Graham's units that were lined up along the Emmitsburg Road, rolling up the federal regiments from left to right. The colorful uniforms of Collis's Zouaves of the 114th Pennsylvania helped them not a bit as they fell back after a desperate fight around the Sherfy house and barn, and soon they were followed by the 57th and 105th Pennsylvania. Although Graham's Federals, quote-unquote, fought like demons, they could do little to stem the gray and butternut tide. Casualties among Graham's regiments were heavy. The 141st Pennsylvania, for example, lost 149 of the 209 men it took into the fight, a staggering 70% loss. As the shattered remnants of the 141st Pennsylvania raced back through the Trossel farm, Dan Sickles, witnessing the unraveling of his line, saw Henry Medill, the regiment's commander, and called out, Colonel, for God's sake, can't you hold on? Medill, with tears in his eyes, replied with a question of his own, asking Sickles, Where are my men? In all, nearly half of Graham's brigade became casualties as Sickles' salient in the peach orchard collapsed. Charles Graham himself was among those who fell. During the course of the bitter fighting, he had two horses shot out from under him and was struck twice, once by a shell fragment and once by a bullet. Falling wounded, Graham would be swept up as a prisoner of war. Watching the destruction of his line from his headquarters near the Trossel barn, Sickles did his best to retain his composure. But soon after his encounter with Colonel Medill, a Confederate cannonball struck squarely into his right knee, nearly severing his leg. Helped from the saddle, the Third Corps commander was placed on a stretcher, and after a tourniquet was quickly applied to the mangled leg, he was carried from the field, supposedly coolly puffing on a cigar to allay any fears some of his men may have had that he'd been killed. Arriving at a field hospital later that evening, Sickles' right leg was amputated. Meanwhile, though, with Sickles wounding, command of the embattled Third Corps fell on the shoulders of David Burney, whose own division had already been cut to pieces at Devil's Den and in the wheat field. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Barksdale, having smashed through Graham's line at the Peach Orchard, then swung his 13th, 17th, and 18th Mississippi to the left, advancing them northward toward the now-exposed left flank of Andrew Humphrey's division of Federals, who were lined up along the Emmitsburg Road. Meanwhile, behind Barksdale's Mississippians advanced another solid line of Confederates. They were William Wofford's Georgians. The sight of Wofford's brigade moving forward must have been worrisome to the Yankee soldiers still desperately trying to hold their positions. But instead of advancing directly behind Barksdale, Wofford's four regiments moved forward astride the Millerstown Wheatfield Road, and after crossing the Emmitsburg Road, continued on an easterly track, bearing down on Stony Hill and the Wheatfield beyond. This was the rebel advance that caused Tilton's Yankees to retreat from Trossel's Woods, and led to the abandonment of Stony Hill by Zook's and Kelly's Federals. With all of Hood's and McClaw's brigades now engaged, James Longstreet rode forward with Wofford's men. The sight of their hard-fighting, much-respected corps commander leading them into the fight inspired the Georgians, who raised their caps to old Pete and let loose with a round of cheers. In response, Longstreet, who was himself a man of few words, simply called out, Cheer less, men, and fight more. Ahead of Wofford's surging line, Colonel Benjamin Humphreys led the 400 soldiers of his 21st Mississippi through the Peach Orchard, advancing east, while the rest of Barksdale's men continued to angle away in their advance up the Emmitsburg Road. The route of the 21st Mississippi carried them directly toward the line of Union guns massed along the Wheatfield Road. With their infantry support now gone, and with Humphreys' Mississippians bearing down on their exposed right, three of those Federal batteries quickly limbered up and raced away, leaving only Captain Charles Phillips' 5th Massachusetts Battery and Captain John Bigelow's 9th Massachusetts Battery in battle for the first time that day in position. Both of those batteries belonged to the Army's Artillery Reserve, and had been sent forward to help plug the gaps in and add support to Sickles' overextended line. But with Sickles' line now smashed, it was time for the batteries to go. Lieutenant Colonel Freeman McGilvery, commanding the Artillery Reserve's 1st Volunteer Brigade, reined up behind Phillips and Bigelow's pieces and ordered the two captains to fall back. Phillips pulled out first, followed shortly thereafter by Bigelow. With Confederate infantry fast approaching, Bigelow didn't think there was enough time to call forward his battery's horses, so the young officer ordered his artillerists to make a fighting retreat, retiring by prolonge, 
which meant they'd pull the cannons by hand, with the men grabbing onto the rope attached to each piece and dragging the cannons rearward, their efforts aided by the recoil of each piece every time it was fired. The sweating artillerists retreated this way some 400 yards, all the way back to the Trossel house, all the while under heavy enemy rifle fire from two directions. Arriving at the Trossel house and believing that his gunners had made it safely through the storm, Captain Bigelow called for his horses, hoping to now use them for the final leg of the journey back to Cemetery Ridge. But Bigelow soon discovered that his men were not yet through for the day. Before he could limber up his guns, McGilvery arrived with new orders for the battery. Realizing that there were no organized friendly troops back on Cemetery Ridge and that there existed a large, vulnerable gap there in the Union line, McGilvery was determined to plug that hole with artillery, but he would need time to do so. That's why he now sought out Bigelow to buy him that time. Riding up to Bigelow, McGilvery told him, Captain, there's not an infantryman back of you. You must remain where you are and hold your position at all hazards and sacrifice your battery if need be until at least I can find some batteries to put in position and cover you. John Bigelow summed up his new orders neatly when he wrote that, quote, the sacrifice of the command was asked in order to save the line. It was a tall order to ask them to fill, especially for men engaged in their first battle, but the Massachusetts gunners were up to the difficult task that had been set before them. Bigelow wheeled his cannon into position, ordered his caissons emptied of ammunition, and had rounds of canister piled up next to each piece, and prepared to make one final stand there by the Trossel house and barn. Bigelow's gunners blasted the advancing Mississippians with canister. He later recalled how, quote, They attacked us furiously, but the battery men double-shotted every gun and swept them back. However, the determined Confederates rallied and began working their way around Bigelow's flanks. For 30 minutes, the Federal artillerists breathlessly went about their work under increasingly heavy pressure from the rebel infantry. Captain Bigelow reported, Quote, men and horses were falling. Sergeant after sergeant was struck down. Horses were plunging and laying all around. Bullets now came in on all sides. The air was dark with smoke. The enemy were yelling like demons, yet my men kept up a rapid fire. But without friendly infantry support, the Massachusetts gunners couldn't hold out forever. With his ammunition depleted and with the rebels pressing ever closer, Bigelow at last gave the order to retreat. But not all of his pieces were able to get away, and four of his six Napoleons would fall, temporarily as it turned out, into the hands of Humphreys' Mississippians. Bigelow was wounded during the retreat, while his 9th Massachusetts light artillery lost 28 men killed or wounded, and no fewer than 45 of its horses shot down. Despite the heavy price paid by the battery, Bigelow and his men had bought precious time from McGilvery, 
who had, by then, rounded up enough federal guns on Cemetery Ridge to resist any further Confederate advance. As McGilvery corralled and placed Union guns on Cemetery Ridge, one of his counterparts in gray, Colonel E.P. Alexander, was dashing forward to the just-captured peach orchard. Seeing Barksdale's Mississippians smash the federal line, the excited Confederate officer, caught up in the moment, told his powder-stained gunners that the war would end that afternoon. Alexander, whom Longstreet had entrusted with the battlefield command of his corps' artillery batteries, ordered six of those batteries forward, directing them to take up new positions in the Peach Orchard and along the Emmitsburg Road. More than 20 rebel guns rushed forward in what Alexander described as, quote, a general race and scramble to get there first. But when Alexander surveyed the scene from the shot-torn orchard, his heart sank. He very quickly realized that he had been mistaken because the enemy position in the peach orchard had not been the main Union line. Instead, the main enemy line was on Cemetery Ridge, quote, near a thousand yards beyond us. There, on Cemetery Ridge, Alexander saw, quote, batteries in abundance and troops marching and fighting everywhere, end quote. Alexander realized the war was not going to be over that afternoon after all. Still, for all that, Alexander noted that, quote, there was plenty to shoot at, end quote, and soon enough some of his gunners were hurling shot and shell at the Yankees over on Cemetery Ridge, while others directed their fire north, where along the Emmitsburg Road, the embattled Federals of Andrew Humphrey's 3rd Corps Division were trying desperately to fend off Confederate attacks from two different directions. Andrew Humphreys had seen Barksdale's Mississippians run roughshod over Graham's Federals in the Peach Orchard, and now he watched as three of Barksdale's hard-charging regiments veered north and began bearing down on his own exposed left flank. Humphreys had no men in reserve now, since all of Burling's regiments had long since been parceled out to plug gaps to the south in Bernie's line. That meant all Humphreys could do to meet Barksdale's Mississippians was to turn his leftmost regiments to face south, refusing that flank to meet the attacking rebels head-on. But even as those regiments were attempting to change front and cover that flank, Humphreys looked to the west and saw new waves of butternut and gray sweeping forward from Seminary Ridge directly toward his front. Those Confederates were Alabamians from Cadmus Wilcox's brigade, from Richard Anderson's division of A.P. Hill's corps. Continuing with the rebel onslaught, Wilcox waited until Barksdale had stepped off. Then, a few minutes after 6 p.m., he ordered his 1,400 men forward. A soldier in the 9th Alabama remembered that when Wilcox, quote, rode along down the line, giving orders to charge, cheer after cheer filled the air, almost drowning the sound of shells that were bursting above and around us. Wilcox's men wouldn't be advancing alone. To their left, two more brigades from Anderson's division, 
under Colonel David Lang and Brigadier General Ambrose Wright, would soon be entering the fray. Lang's was an undersized brigade, consisting of just three Florida regiments and totaling 700 men, while Wright swept forward with twice as many men in his All-Georgia Brigade. Humphrey's Federals along the Emmitsburg Road, now under pressure from two sides, from south and west, were putting up a tough fight as the attacking Confederates continued to bear down on them, while bursting shells from Alexander's rebel guns in the Peach Orchard filled the air overhead. Humphreys had already directed his own artillery off the field. Then orders arrived from Bernie, who, remember, had taken over command of the Third Corps after Sickles was wounded. Bernie now told Humphreys he was to fall back. Humphreys, who would never be accused of lacking personal bravery, later insisted that he could have held out and that he didn't want to abandon his line. Well, be that as it may, orders being orders, he directed his two brigades under Brewster and Carr to retreat. It was a fighting retreat, with the Federals keeping up a steady fire as they withdrew eastward toward Cemetery Ridge. The price that Andrew Humphrey's division paid on July 2nd for its stand along the Emmitsburg Road and this fighting withdrawal was a steep one, with 1,600 men, or 40% of the division's total strength, joining the rolls of the days killed, wounded, or missing. Sickles' line had been smashed, and now the soldiers of four Confederate brigades under Barksdale, Wilcox, Lang, and Wright pressed ahead toward an exceptionally thin Union line on Cemetery Ridge. Farther south, rebel troops from Hood's and McClaw's divisions, having cleared the wheat field, were now mustering strength for a push toward the northern slopes of Little Round Top. For George Meade and the Army of the Potomac, these were some desperate moments indeed. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Gettysburg's Peach Orchard, Longstreet, Sickles, and the Bloody Fight for the Commanding Ground along the Emmitsburg Road by James A. Hessler and Britt C. Eisenberg. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this show, we want to thank Becky for her lovely note and for her recent donation. Thanks also to Lloyd, Brian and Kelly, Paul, Robert, Michelle, and Vincent for their donations. And thanks to all of you who've signed up to join the Strawfoot Brigade recently. With us taking a few weeks off, there are quite a few of you, so we won't run through the whole list, but please know that your support is very much appreciated. And don't forget to check out that new members episode about Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. We'll have part two of that out to you next weekend. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.